Did you know that in the late 1600s, a small group of ordinary people rose up against the establishment and changed society forever? The world called them pirates, but these pirates didn't just break the rules, they rewrote them. They didn't just reject society, they reinvented it. Pirate crews created equal pay, equal say, workplace compensation and even same-sex marriage. In the face of industrial-scale disruption, global conflict and an uncertain future, the pirates of the golden age weren't quite the villains that Disney would have you believe. Welcome to our Be More Pirate podcast. I'm Alex Barker. And I'm Sam Conniff. In 2018, my first book, Be More Pirate, was published by Penguin Random House. After 20 years working with young creatives, the book was an outlet for my frustrations and a quest for some new role models who could capture the spirit of rebellion I knew we so desperately need to tackle the big challenges ahead. And I found it in Pirates. The book then became something far bigger than I ever expected. Be More Pirate is now a global movement of people and organisations taking a stand to update the rules, systems and business models that are no longer fit for purpose. And I went from being Sam's right-hand pirate to leading this community and writing a second book to tell their story. So if you, like so many in our crew, find yourself dissatisfied with the status quo, then this podcast is here to give you permission to do things differently. We'll be interviewing some of the best pirates out there people who really live their values and are willing to stick their head above the parapet for the greater good. We'll tackle some uncomfortable conversation topics and delve into what it really takes to break and rewrite the rules today. The man joining us on the podcast today is Ed Gillespie, an environmental consultant, writer, poet, speaker and futurist. He is co-founder of Futura Communications, a facilitator with the Forward Institute, and he co-presents two podcasts, John Richardson and the Future Noughts and The Great Humbling with Dougal Hine. He is also the author of Only Planet, a book he wrote after circumnavigating the globe without getting on a plane. This introduction, even to Ed, is going to definitely undersell him in my efforts to be brief. Environmental consultant is really putting it lightly. For anyone who's ever heard Sam or I refer to ourselves as insultants, aka a consultant that tells the truth, that's because we nick the term from Ed. He does not suffer fools lightly. He's been working on climate-related challenges long before it felt as urgent as it does today, And he is the first person that I would go to if I wanted to better understand any environmental issue from an intellectual or moral standpoint. So we're really grateful to have him on the podcast today. I also heard he really likes fancy dress. Welcome, Ed. In immersing myself in Ed Gillespie content over the last few days, you have so much wonderful writing and speaking and commentary on different things. It was almost, I just had to accept that I would never be able to become an expert in you in this short period of time. So just for the sort of start of the podcast, could you, in the way that you like to describe it, how you came to the point you're at now? I started out as a marine biologist. You know, my first love was always the sea. I was always immersed in something salty. I ended up coming to a conclusion as a fisheries biologist, having worked all over the world, that I was going to spend most of my career saying, if you don't stop catching all the fish, there won't be any fish. And so it was like, I've got to get into some kind of broader campaigning work here, because otherwise I'm just going to be adding to this cumulative pile of data that tells us what we already know. And that data is important, but I felt like I wanted to do something beyond that, which is how I came to end up co-founding the agency that I worked in for 18 years, Futera, which was all about making sustainability so desirable it becomes normal. And that was 
very much focused on the sort of positive opportunities of sustainability. Now, I had a fairly sort of traumatic and turbulent departure from that agency, which we can't talk about for legal reasons. But suffice to say, I had a sort of creeping, nagging doubt in the last few years of being there that we weren't actually fixing things. We weren't actually solving things. And I don't even like to use the language of solutions really these days. I got the sense that actually we were part of the problem, that we were acting as a drag on things. I'd already at that point sort of repositioned myself as a futurist because no one wants to book the sustainability guy. <laughs> it's like, you could imagine people having a conference going, who should we get? Should we get the sustainability guy? And you're like, well, it sounds a bit dry. Uh, let's get the futurist. So I realized I got a lot more gigs by talking about the future, by saying exactly the same things about climate change and biodiversity loss and innovation and disruption as I did as a sustainability consultant, but I just got more bookings. So it got me into a bigger audience. And then I also felt that my creativity had been sort of enslaved to corporate interests. I mean, inevitably, when you're running a sustainability consultancy, most of your creative energies writing strap lines and strategies for large multinational corporations. And so my creative work now does feel somewhat unshackled from those constraints, which is why I enjoy writing poetry and doing drawings and illuminating it, because it certainly feels a lot more fun than trying to map out the particular strategic narrative and boilerplate strapline for yet another mediocre sustainability campaign. But I mean, <laughs> there's loads of stuff in there. I could rabbit about it for hours, but it's been a weird and wonderful journey. I now describe myself as a sort of recovering sustainability consultant and sort of using the insultancy of being strategically rude in a hopefully a humorous and lighthearted fashion to disarm people and try and get them to raise their ambitions and aspirations in a way which is commensurate with the severity and urgency of the challenges ahead. On that point, right, and you and I have had this conversation, it's kind of worth saying so that we don't sound like we're slipping into too much kind of in-jokery. We don't know each other very well, but when we did meet each other about two years ago, we discovered that we kind of followed this almost exactly mirroring path, having had built agencies that were trying to be counter to the industries that we were in to turn around change by working with the larger organizations who'd be coming to us, ours around kind of social change and opportunities for young people and you around sustainability. And had gone into these big brands with this kind of great zeal that we could create change within and then ended up at the end of it worrying perhaps that we'd inadvertently added to the problem or slowing down of, you know, the kind of acceleration of change that was needed. And we had this outpouring of the amount of bars and business meetings and various things where we had some kind of sliding doors existence. Yours was just a thinner, better looking one, Sam, than mine. <laughs> yeah, but you've got the burbling water, which I'm now jealous. So, you know, I'll, I have to play to, my, play to my few remaining strengths and, and the five years you've got me. So it seems, and I would never want to dismiss or even downgrade our colleagues and comrades in the social enterprise, sustainability, activism, or even the advocacy spaces. But it does seem from where we're standing, and I wouldn't want to sound arrogant in that position, because I don't know that necessarily I've got any more hindsight than those ahead of me. But it does feel like we failed to achieve, not just on sustainability, but on many like broad planetary crises. We failed to achieve what so much of that advocacy still seeks to achieve. And therein kind of lies the problem. People are setting out things we should be trying to aim for that will be too late in themselves. To pull it out of just sustainability, that feels like, you know, they're intersected dilemmas around, you know, fixing democracy or the problem with media impartiality or even sustainability. And what we're aiming for is too little and too late. 
So it's not yeah. just stepping out of that space of conversation. It's a completely different criticism, which is pretty hard to make. It is, you know, and I hold my hands up here in a sort of confessional sense. You know, I've described this as I'm not calling people out. I'm calling them in because I feel like I've failed. And I feel like I failed to, to make those changes and to, to provide that sort of compelling advocacy. And I think it's partly because the methods that we're still deploying are not going to create the transition and transformation required. And so we all have to take a hard look at ourselves. The fact is, we're often part of the vested interest because we're all, you know, earning good money where we're working in successful organizations, which have, you know, commercial badges of honor attached to them. And yet, if you're not bending the curve, then you have to have a kind of long, honest conversation with yourself. And I feel like it's that sort of one more push mentality, which prevents us from making the more radical changes. And, you know, the consultancy world in particular, which is obviously where I spent most of my adult career, is particularly paradoxical. Because on the one hand, you've got to say, well, yes, you've got to have a relationship with a client in order to be able to change them. But that relationship can very quickly become sort of semi-codependent. It's usually about selling people a different product. So you've got a whole series of things lined up that you're going to sell the client once you've got them in the door. And if you're not careful, it very quickly then becomes complicity, you know, and almost some form of sort of client consultant Stockholm syndrome, where we're all happy with the way things are going, but actually we're not really changing much, even with the best aspirations and intentions. And I think for me, that's the nub of it is I'm not calling people out in terms of their morals or their ethics per se, because I think the intentions are broadly, strictly honourable and very positive. The trouble is, unless we get a little bit more hieratical about this, then we're not going to have a hope of creating the sort of non-linear disruptive change, which is actually required. You said being strategically rude is the strapline for being an insultant. It's always in the how for me. So you must tell the truth for sure. And that seems to be the crux of where it goes wrong because we avoid the truth or avoid the thing that needs to be said very frequently in consultancy, or at least in a consultancy relationship that has become more like you being almost like an employee of theirs. I think that can happen almost in such a creeping way that you don't even notice that you are actually in bed now. But if you are too rude or too direct, the chances are it's too radical. They'll recoil. It feels like too much. So have you got any examples of where it's really worked or it really hasn't worked and backfired? I think one key thing to note before that, though, Alex, is humour is a great leveller and is a great disarmer. If you can bring the ability of people and organisations to laugh at themselves a little, even if it's through a glass darkly, then you can often soften the blow or sugar the pill a little because people will ask different questions when they're laughing at themselves. And so it's not about going in and just shouting till you're red in the face of folk. You've got to sort of satirise the ridiculousness in some way, shape or form in order to get them to open up. One of the classic ones I did was with a, you know, a bottled water brand. And it was their sort of European sustainability managers meeting, you know, aggregating people from all over Europe. And the essence, as we all know, with bottled water is the problem is the business model. 
you know, it's not the purpose. The purpose is hydration, lovely. Everyone needs to drink water. But the fact is you've got this business model which trucks perfectly potable drinking water in plastic bottles hundreds of thousands of miles around Europe, burning loads of fossil fuels to take it to places where there's already perfectly potable drinking water. And it's sort of an insanity. At the lunchtime of this day-long workshop, which was the sort of next step of their sustainability strategy, the grouped managers were essentially saying, oh, we could like increase the percentage of recycled PET in the bottles. You know, and that seemed to be like the extent of their ambitions. So at lunchtime, I was like, bollocks to this. And so I basically wrote on some big bits of paper and stuck them around the room. I put, just put, you know, like one million bottles a minute, which is what are produced globally still in terms of the sort of plastic problem. I think I wrote, is our response proportionate to the urgency and scale of the challenge? And then on the third one, I put, what will you remember about the milestones of your own career in five years time? After lunch, when they all came back, I sort of, I didn't give it to them both barrels, but I said, look, you know, what are we discussing here? We're all agreed that there's a massive problem. We all agreed it's an issue, but you've all reverted back to the existing business model and the incremental tweaks you can make against that. And it just doesn't add up. Hand on heart, I have to say it was probably divisive. You know, half the room loved it, felt it was like an unspoken truth that was finally flushed out into the open that everyone could then have a serious conversation with. And perhaps the more institutionalized members of the attendees were horrified that anyone would even question uh, certainly a, an external consultant would even question the core business model that was the basis of all of their profitability. And so in answer to your question, Alex, it was sort of like both scenarios in one session. You know, half the people loved it, half the people were horrified. But again, I think that's about honesty and it's about truth. It's where Extinction Rebellion still draws so much of its power from. You know, tell the truth and act like the truth is real. Because otherwise, we are in this comfortable, cosseted, sense of self-delusion. And I think the reality in so many consultancy client discussions is we're not able to have those honest conversations because certain aspects of the business model or the organization's commerciality are basically out of bounds. They're not up for debate. Firstly, I think that sounds fucking great and well done. And I think that's so hard and hopefully inspiring to anybody who is in, and I know lots of our community have consultancy-esque positions. And if that's not giving it to people on both barrels, then bring on both barrels, because that sounds pretty like both <laughs> barrels consultancy to me. I'm not sure that it's always about just the honesty. And I think Extinction Rebellion's, you know, tell the truth line is an excellent, excellent way of positioning themselves that does provide a great deal of their strength. But it's not so much about the honesty, because in the positions or environments that we're talking about, the honesty is pretty clear. You know, you just wrote the honest facts on the wall. That's not really in debate. It's kind of about people's acceptance or ability to accept. Like you said, there's a degree of denial. And we talked in Beemore Pirate a lot about getting comfortable with the uncomfortable. And I think that's evolving now to, can you accept profound uncertainty? Can you accept that the world you knew is no longer acceptable? Can you accept that your business model, like you said, is going to look like a war crime? I mean, maybe that's a bit extreme, but as a huge contributor to the problem down the line. And that gets to be where it's really interesting. And I, I've got this like real feeling, you know, you know, a lot of our work in the similar environments, what we've done is tried to call for mutiny because... I've got this feeling, right? There's a significant portion of people who look at things honestly and can take on board how great the challenge is and are willing to go to the streets and professional lifetime career, professional services, lawyers and doctors who are willing to glue themselves to things. And then you've got at the senior edges, some leaders who are close enough to real leaders who are really fighting for change. And then you've got this big middle. And in that big middle are a lot of people 
who've got way more power than they think, way too little time to think about it. They're really invested because they've got money, careers, futures, kids, and they've probably got more agency in this than they think. And most of my work has been at either ends, you know, working with activists and advocates or working with really senior leaders. And I think there's this kind of big middle where this possibility of mutiny really lies because the future is likely to be decided by not the activists on the street who are playing a fantastically important role and not necessarily, Alex and I have debated this a few times, and she's of the opinion, and I, and I, I buy it, that it has to be legislature change because I don't know whether that's going to happen in time. But like a few million professionals who are close enough to the rules to be able to change them if they could act in a more mutinous way, because that's the only place in these businesses and organizations where change can come around quick enough by probably it boils down to a few million people in the next three to five years, like taking the fucking risk of their lives. That's exactly it, Sam. I mean, what I've been saying to focus, like, okay, let's look at what the landscape, how it feels at the moment. And you just say, right, okay, if we're doing 50% in carbon by 2030, eight years, that's pretty much on the watch, under the auspices and under the responsibility of all of those middle managers. It's the peak of their career. You know, it's the next eight years. If you're people like me, you know, you're just in your late 40s, turning 50. This is your swan song. This is like, how do you get to a 50% cut? And if you start to draw those kind of parameters around things, I think that's a context in which radicalization can happen because it's quite obvious then very quickly that you ain't going to get to a 50% cut that quickly through the existing models and by some kind of extension of business as usual. So it forces and compels people to have to look elsewhere. But I, I think you're absolutely right. I think somehow we have to to start that sort of mutinous, I ain't going to take it anymore. And I think so much of it is there at a latent level, and particularly so during perhaps the periods of introspection and reflection that everyone's had, getting a different perspective on their career and their organisation during lockdown and during the last sort of 18 months. I think people are coming back at things with a fresh new vigour, actually, despite the exhaustion of eternal Zoom, and certainly the responsible leaders that I work with at the, at the Forward Institute, who are probably not dissimilar to some of your groupings, I do get a sense of people going, if not me, who, if not now, when, in the cliche, if we are going to springboard our way into a different world and not just build back normal or get back to normal, but actually use this opportunity in the way that we're already seeing starting to happen with hybrid working to actually embed things that have been in existence for years in little tiny pockets, but haven't yet been mainstreamed and scaled up. And I'm sort of paraphrasing the other day. I mean, I've often quoted William Gibson, you know, saying the future's out there. It's just not evenly distributed yet. And uh, then I saw someone paraphrase that on Twitter saying the collapse is out there. It's just not evenly distributed yet. And it's like, oof, yeah, that feels actually even sharper. Yeah. And the reason why I asked you about meeting people where they are and maybe not being really direct is because although we've seen these brave people who do take the moment upon themselves to do a mutiny or decide that they are going to grasp that career defining moment, it's not by any means on the scale it needs to be at all. And I had this conversation with a friend often in relation to the kind of reinventing work movement around like flat structures and hierarchy and all of that. And he's like, I really feel like it's growing. It's like taking off. And I'm like, in like 2000 organizations in the entire world, We've got like millions to go for. And, and that's the only going to be the only possible tipping point for climate stuff. So I want to acknowledge the optimism, but I also sometimes just sense the feeling that 
the reason why I kind of think about meeting people where they are a lot of the time is that there are so many big multinationals where they're so far away from the kind of radical initiatives. Or do you think, Ed, and this has just gone in my head, do you think that actually it will all just reach a tipping point and then spiral very quickly? We have to hope that that's the case and it's the right type of tipping point and the right type of spiral. But firstly, I mean, it's absolutely not always safe to do this. There are all sorts of risks involved, both commercial and career-wise. You know, I was doing some work with a major high street bank, a whole bunch of senior leaders there. And and they said, you know, we like to say we've got an open culture of listening and we encourage people to speak out. And then in the next reshuffle, those people disappear. <laughs> it's like, oh, okay, so that's really safe. We want people to be outspoken and honest and forceful and thrusting. And then we remove them if they're problematic to the established commercial agenda that we've got in train. And I definitely do think these things happen in tipping points. These are all about discontinuities. If I put my evolutionary biologist hat back on, channel my inner Attenborough, Sam, we used to think that, you know, evolution took place through what they call phyletic gradualism, you know, nice, smooth, branched images of different species just, you know, separating and diversifying. Actually, what happens in evolution is what they call punctuated equilibria, where you get long periods of stability and then radical explosions of diversity. And we have to hope, I think, that what we're on the cusp of in the face of irreversible elements of climate change, as the Intergovernmental Panel described them the other week, that we get more of those discontinuities where actually paradigms shift, contexts get upended. And I do think you're right, Alex, I do think there will be an enormous amount of litigation and legislation and regulation, which happens in fairly chaotic knee-jerk style which will be relatively unpredictable. But, for example, the, the, the big court case against Shell in the Netherlands a few weeks ago, where 17,000 Dutch citizens successfully took Shell to the High Court, High Court agreed that Shell should cut their carbon emissions by 45% by 2030. And, you know, that's existential for Shell. So obviously they're going to try and litigate their way out of this. But I think you're going to see a lot more of that. Client Earth do amazing things legally as well, using the law to hold organisations to account. And I think there's just going to be this ever-increasing rumble. And if you're not at the table, as the saying goes, you're on the menu. And all of those organisations that are still resistant to change are the ones that are going to get flipped on their backs like turtles in the sun as the world changes around them faster than they're comfortable with. I mean, I'm going time to be lying on your back in the sun. No. Um, (laughs) The two things I want to think about there, right? So I really like that story about Shell and I really respect Client Earth and it feels like good people using their disciplines to do it. But again, back to this notion of the big middle, I think there's a vast majority of people who are sitting there thinking they'd really like to do something and it's this acceptance piece again. Like you go around the houses thinking, I can't really do anything. I don't have much agency in this. And it's trying to find answers there. Now, I think there's a bit of a mindset shift that needs to go on. And it's close to what you said. You said you feel there is a fresh new vigor. And I like that. This isn't going to be easy. And I, and I think that's true. I really like Alex Stefan, who I've not heard of before, but a recent piece he wrote ahead of his book coming out, The Snap Forward, which I'm looking forward to a great deal. He's saying there is no chance that there will be an orderly transition. That if we're waiting for that, then we're overdue. So the idea that an ordinary person who is not a lawyer or an advocate or a climate change or whatever, but can go to work to find who is it in this organization who is making the right decisions and stage their Google walkout, stage their, you know, civil disobedience, start a fight internally at work. Because as much as 45% of profits is existential for Shell, even more existential for any organization is its talent, especially at the moment. 
And so there is this power in all of those middle managers and above just in their own asset class to the organizations they're in. And it's the biggest thing that they can threaten to withdraw. And if it's done at mass, suddenly there is this huge turnkey. But rule breaking requires a degree of resilience. And, you know, that's one of the hardest things because then you're talking about people bringing a real risk to themselves, to the absolute base level human need to support your family, to provide subsistence. And so then you come to this really, really hard choice that you're asking people to make. I think there needs to be this sense of climate solidarity. I mean, you've already seen it. I mean, we've seen Google pro- staff protests. We've seen Amazon staff talking about their own organization's carbon footprint. You know, we've also at the higher level had, you know, activist shareholders getting seats on the board of Exxon. I do think there is a groundswell of this type of stuff starting to happen. And it's almost like we don't need a permission to act. You know, we just need to start organizing because as you say, withdrawal of labour is actually totally radical. And I think there were some of us who hoped actually that the school strikes, you know, the inspiration of those courageous young people behind Greta Thunberg, there was a potential for those climate strikes to be replicated, you know, at an adult level. Why not? I mean, the kids have set the example. And it's almost like we ducked the opportunity. It was like people, and I think, there was some good reasons for that because I think people said, well, we don't want to detract from the power of what the young people are doing. And, you know, this is their show and we don't want to sort of say, and me too. Uh, but at the same time, there would have been a way of doing that which honoured the precedent that they were setting and stood alongside them and saying, well, we're going to replicate the same thing in our businesses and organisations. So, yes, climate strike for big, responsible, boring old people as well. I really want to agree with you in that this is pretty much... All I advocate in doing workshops, and I really do believe that that is where the power lies. But at the same time, we said this right at the beginning, Sam, to never forget what it was like almost to be in the Navy. I still try to hang on to that feeling of fear, of like a sense of powerlessness, just to almost relate to why the groundswell is, yes, more evident. And there have been some notable examples, but then I don't think it's real groundswell. Like It's not youth climate strikes groundswell sort of. And I'm just always thinking about grappling with the question of how can you amplify it? What will the triggers be to get that mindset, to scale that sense of agency and power that does feel like a lever? But I can remember, I can remember how hard it was. And it's so easy once you've been self-employed or running something for a long time to go, of course you can do this. And maybe that's why it's so useful to have an outsider come in and help facilitate that. But it can feel so hard. Well, I mean, this is one of the reasons I advocated almost like a kind of employees assembly, an employees version of the citizens assembly to say, look, let's just get a cross representative demographic section of your organization, someone from the C-suite all the way down to the shop floor. And let's get them to, you know, creatively thrash out doing what needs to be done might actually look like just to stretch the imagination of the possible of what is happening in those organizations. Because we know whenever you start to actually grind through, people know what needs to be done. They just don't think it's doable or they don't think it's commercial or they don't think other people will support it. Again, this is why, you know, I start to talk about the emerta, the code of silence, because I believe all the ingenuity and innovation is often simmering there beneath the surface, but it's denied the oxygen of being vocalized. No one will, will speak it or, heaven forfend, Sam, sing it out. You know, that's what we want people to be doing. You know, that's where the disharmony comes from, because we could be doing some nice close harmony barbershop singing if we only set people free a bit more. You can also kind of short term, long term way, you know, as much as we should be thinking in 
groups and communities and what the strength comes from there. There's also this notion of short-term, long-term. And I think we said it in one of these podcasts before, but I shared it with Alex around some research I'm doing on this project about uncertainty. And far and away, when asked about fears, looking ahead into life and regrets, I think it was like 80% of the people who came through the program said they feared most was failure. And so that speaks to the individual, right? So the, the, the reason that you wouldn't speak up, that threat of failure. And that comes from a you know very logical place of survival. You want to stay within the pack. But when we ask the question in a retrospect, what is the thing you least want to regret? Should you find yourself at death's door or should you find yourself in the second phase of life or wherever you're going to be, what do you least want to regret? And far and away, the answer was missed opportunity. And so the number one thing that will stop a missed opportunity, right, is fear, of course. And right down the bottom of the list of the things that you would want to look back and regret was failure. So no one cared, you know, looking back in the life. So there is this opportunity perhaps to bust that stasis of feeling like you're in the Navy and you're unable to act by taking people some way into the future. And this kind of relates to the, you know, the seven generation philosophy of how we could and should be thinking about things. But the thing that stopped me in my tracks thinking about the future recently is the 500 years book by Christopher Sammons. And it's about intergenerational survival, not in an Elon Musk way. Let's all just take the rich people to Mars, which, you know, go for it, Elon, you bellend, is more like, well, you know, we might get through the imminent climate catastrophe, but the real chances of, you know, human survival on Earth for like the next thousand years, for, for all manner of reasons, is almost unthinkable. So what are we fighting for, really? Most human beings can't really think more than five years ahead. Very, very few will think 50 and nobody, but nobody thinks 500. So if it's species survival, then it's not within this planetary confine anyway. So it's quite interesting when suddenly I thought like climate crisis avoidance, sustainability, deep adaptation is all just the kind of thinking like that is even short term. And according to the book, and he seems a very respected scientist and based on published research, there are 23 solar systems that have comparable life-sustaining environments to Earth, but they're so far away, you'd have to have at least a generation's worth of travel. So people would have to be ready to live and die on that spacecraft if the technology existed to repopulate, you know. And I've read some really good books recently, found uh, Ministry of the Future and various other things, which made me think more long-term, but nothing made me think more long-term than this. And it suddenly became, you know, what is life? I mean, what is life without the planet? What is life without that combination of ecosystems? And is it the fight for human survival? In which case, the thinking needs to be even bigger than where we were. And it just, like I say, I'm not talking short-term Elon, Bezos, space rocket, penis extension, escape, but long, long-term human survival. Should we go out with a bang if the planet's going to go? Should we be thinking about relocating? Where do you where do you draw the line on this? Interesting questions. I mean, I read a similar book by a risk academic, Mr. Ord. I can't remember his Christian name, actually, which is Existential Risk and the Future of Humanity. And he talks about again as you say very similar very very long-term things and pinch points i mean part of me as you say beyond the sort of edge of space dick waving that goes on between bezos and branson and then musk wanting to take us to mars and beyond there is part of me which says it's neither going out with a bang or intergalactic colonization because let's face it that's probably what it would be and our history of colonization is not exactly an illustrious one domestically on our terrestrial sphere. In a way, it's like rather than going out with a bang, how do we go out with honor? <laughs> how do we end well? And perhaps that's more akin to something like being a good ancestor and understanding that us is only part of an ecology. It may mean that our exit may be dignified and actually 
respectful to that ecology. And, you know, let's face it, species don't last forever. You know, unless you're a horseshoe crab that's been around for hundreds of millions of years, most of the ancestors in our family tree are long gone. And so there may well be something that carries on, but I <laughs> I don't think it's a binary choice between some hedonistic partying till the world burns and twanging ourselves into another solar system. I think there's a lot of other options in the middle there that might actually be more realistic and perhaps more meaningful. I'm not doing it justice. The, the Next 500 Years by Chris Mason is, is the name of the book, and it, it's less twanging into an unrealistic future. It's more a thoughtful evaluation of what are we fighting for. Yeah. And if it's human survival, then is planetary survival necessarily? It's Well, that's true. I mean, I think for me, what's always motivated me in sustainability is the idea of suffering and justice. I think that's where all of my sort of personal drivers have come from. And I think that can get a bit lost sometimes when you get into some of those bigger questions. And it's not to say we get become hogtied by the existence of suffering now, which obviously is still there. But I think climate change is such a big thing in that regard, with already hundreds of thousands of people probably losing their lives prematurely each year already as a result of climate change. And I always go back to something a quite established climate scientist said in a workshop in Cambridge University a few years ago on difficult to communicate climate messages. And he just said, you know, what you have to bear in mind is that every single tonne of carbon that doesn't go into the atmosphere now alleviates future human suffering in some way, shape or form. And that really stuck with me. And so I think even if there's so much change baked into the system, which there is, you know, the world's not going to get cooler. It's only going to get hotter. The debate and the action now is uh, to what extent do we allow it to get, you know, extremely hot? You know, whatever happens, it's going to get pretty uncomfortable in, in large parts of the world. And so these are, if you like, sort of even broader ethical and philosophical debates about, well, what are we prepared to tolerate? I really want to just pause on that topic of suffering and sacrifice and privilege, maybe to, to an extent. We had a girl come on one of the Be More Pirate meetups around the climate, and she was tuning in from India, and she said, it's kind of hilarious that in the West, you just keep on banging on about two degrees and 1.5 degrees. And she's like, parts of India, it's risen by seven degrees already and it's uninhabitable. And it's such a Western centric perspective. And I think about this a lot in relation to climate change and, and activism, because especially and COVID, because we've immersed ourselves in this narrative of crisis for the last 18 months, when so much of the world has been in crisis for decades in various different forms. And at certain points in your life, you become acutely aware of them. Like I remember reading books when I first got into international development when I was younger and being like properly shaken by how bad certain things were and that they were such buried facts, but they just weren't in proximity to my existence at all. And that the climate realizations are simply just them coming into closer proximity. And also on a sort of different side of the coin, I was just reading on holiday Sadie Smith's essays about COVID. And in one of them, she talks about the difference between suffering and privilege. And she says that there's a difference, that suffering is such a unique thing to a person. There were certain people who couldn't cope with four weeks of lockdown, not being able to see friends and ended their lives. And some people can endure absolutely horrific things and come out almost better at the end of it. And this is almost like a discontinuity in our understanding of what is bad and what is good in able to do things because it's so different and unique for people in some ways. I think that can freeze people. I think that can create paralysis in your desire to do anything because you're like, well, there's always been suffering. There'll always be suffering. I just wonder about that interlocking of the personal and the bigger societal 
themes on that. <laughs> yeah. it was more philosophical than I wanted it to be, but. Um... <laughs> Well, I mean, I mean, Sam just mentioned the Ministry of the Future. I mean, you can't read the first few chapters of that book where they're actually talking about one of these absolutely scenario-changing heat waves, which lead to millions of deaths, and what that would do to our collective comprehension of what is still broadly a self-inflicted challenge. You know, and I'm hesitant to use that sort of disaster-type stuff as well, because as a veteran of climate change action, We always used to say in the late 90s, we were like, oh, you know, we just need a few of these disasters to hit and the penny will drop. People will understand, you know, what a hotter, more turbulent and actually more extreme, violent meteorological world will look like and they'll wake up, you know. And then we had Hurricane Katrina and New Orleans was inundated. And here we are, you know, 20 years on and New Orleans has just been inundated again and we've had fires and God knows what. And I don't know whether those disasters really ram home the message because in answer to your point or in response to your point Alex about the connection between the personal and the global I think we're still quite happy to push on with our personal individual rights in complete disconnection from our collective international responsibilities and I think you know that's where for me the privilege kicks in it's not always about sacrifice but it's certainly about substitution and change And, you know, for me, again, as someone who worked in communication, you know, which blurred into marketing sometimes and defending some of these big organizations and brands, we are still in hock to this monstrous insecurity engine, which is continually creating, you know, false needs and desires and meeting some very real and fundamental human needs with a simulacrum of materialism and it's like that to me is if we want to get philosophical that's the problem at the root of all of this and people are refusing to give that up in order to change the world or to show the world that we love the world and that we appreciate and value it and are grateful for it in some way and that can sound sort of quasi-religious but there is a a spirited element if not a spiritual one to this you know the esprit de corps the team spirit of being one people on one planet which will be absolutely essential i think if you know we're going to navigate the 500 years that chris mason was describing in the book that sam mentioned so kind of the other way like in closing let's talk about your pub (laughs) (laughs) you know to bring it all together of course the next great big disaster is going to make us real no, it's not, because there's a kind of point I was saying earlier on. It's not about honestly recognizing these things. It's about ability to not disassociate from them. It's our ability to accept them. And the bigger the disaster, the more likely many normal human beings will be to less able to comprehend it. And it's gone beyond the getting comfortable with uncomfortability. It's getting present with profound uncertainty. And one way of doing that is finding meaning, finding community, finding in a sense of control and building out from there that sense of one people, one more planet, but also one community and our ability to alter influence and connect as a community will be as critical to our survival locally as it will globally. And you've got a really good story about doing this in a pub. Yeah. The story of the Locks Inn in Gelderston in Norfolk is a great encapsulation. And, you know, 
it, it, it becomes increasingly clear to me what a microcosm it is of other big challenges. I mean, to cut a long story short, I mean, this is an amazing pub. It was the pub that I did underage drinking in in my teens. It's right on the river. It's in the middle of nowhere on the marshes. You have to go down a sort of mile-long dirt track to locate it. Back in, you know, mid-80s, it was entirely off-grid. I mean, it's still off-grid now, but they have a generator. But back then, it was literally candlelight and gravity barrel of beer behind the bar. It's been an absolutely, like, iconic pub since the 17th century when it was just a lockkeeper's cottage. And obviously the lockkeeper used to sell ale to passing wherrymen who were obviously transporting agricultural goods and produce up and down the River Waveney. And this pub came on the market and it came on in a way the freeholder was trying to flog it off for residential purposes. Because as we all know, pubs are worth nothing as a commercial business because it's very hard to make money out of a pub under a lot of the existing restrictions. But we realised that actually the pub was valued at 400 grand, but it would be worth double that as a house because of its location and its beauty. And so it was going to auction. And so we basically had to launch a very, very fast campaign in order to A, prevent the pub going to auction, So we got an asset of community value stamped on it from the local council, which basically made it very difficult for them to change the use. We then persuaded the vendor not to take it to auction and to sell it to us for the asking price. And we had to borrow like hundreds of thousands of pounds at very short notice, uh, like literally three weeks notice in order to be able to do that. And then we had to do a sort of community share offer to raise the money to pay everyone back, <laughs> which we did. And we raised 600,000. So we raised not only enough money to buy the pub, but also to reinvest in it and bring it back to what it should be. And there were all sorts of horrible dramas along the way that the exiting tenant ripped out all the fixtures and fittings, which they're entitled to do under their lease, but it was like an act of cultural vandalism in a pub, which had literally been there for hundreds of years, as you can imagine, including a stuffed pike off the wall and stuff like that stuff that was worth nothing but hugely symbolically important but what was amazing was the community response we had over a thousand investors who came in including people from all over the world who were just captured by the narrative of the story we were telling about this place and i've been down a few times this summer and what's extraordinary is a is an incredible feeling about walking into a pub you co-own with a thousand other people. So you've got an instant market in itself with a thousand punters who all own a, a piece of it. But the extraordinary thing is the ability to reinvest. We don't have a rent, so we have a very low overhead. You know, we can buy beer freely. So you can buy beer, you make a great markup on your beer, which you can buy at, you know, 75p a pint and sell at a very reasonable three, three pound fifty a pint. For all you Londoners out there, it is possible to get beer for under a fiver and, you know, and still make a good profit on it. And the thing is, that will never change. So all of the, the dilemmas that face other pubs, we've managed to sort of bypass them. And you can see this place going from strength to strength. We've just rebuilt the bar at the pub to make it flood resistant because it's on the marshes. It does flood, usually on average at least once a year. So we've built a brick bar with a beautiful oak top. But it means that when the pub is inundated, it's easy to mop up. You know, we've sort of proofed it. And we've been able to put money into the place for the longer term in a way that no sitting tenant would ever have done, even if they'd had a five-year lease because it just wasn't worth it. Whereas we can now take... 10, 20, 30 year time span and really 
put the money in and know that it will be well looked after. So it's a wonderful story of sort of people power and community and collaboration and commercial success, but also busting so many of the paradigms, the commercial pressures, which are destroying pubs in other parts of the country, either through the tie, either through punitive rents or whatever. So it's possible to do this on any pub, we think. And certainly there are lots of people now trying to replicate what is seen as a very successful model to bring pubs back into being genuine public houses. You know, that's what they're there for. They started out as people's living rooms. Let's turn them back into our collective living rooms again and do it by owning them and running them ourselves. Whatever the challenge, the answer is always community. Yeah, yeah. There is such an opportunity for the reimagining of the pub. I think we talked about this a little bit earlier in the series with Laura about her trying to think about pubs to not just be for people who want to drink alcohol, but are more of a social community space. And if they were owned by more people, yeah. My mate Mark Dodds, who's been involved in the sort of people's pub partnership for years, trying to do this, he used to run the Southern Doves down on Cold Harbour Lane in Camberwell. He was a legendary man. But, you know, um, Mark said, you know, they are our most important secular institution. I remember Mark pitching that at the RSA in the hall there years and years and years ago and we were all like we don't get it like how is this social impact and now I was like wow this is, that was very symbolic of like the mindset of like not understanding what really would have an impact thank you so much for joining us really appreciate a bit of your time lovely stuff thank you for tuning in today Our hope with this podcast is that each time it might inspire a few more people to realise that the way things are is not the way they have to be, and that maybe it's time for you to step up and take that leap into the unknown. If you like what you heard, then please consider subscribing to the podcast on the platform of your choice. Even better, leave us a review, let us know who you'd like us to interview next, or of course just tell us how you're being more pirate. We are first and foremost a community, so we'd really love to hear from you. Go to at Be More Pirate on Instagram or Twitter or visit bemorepirate.com. See you next time.